Good evening, everyone. Good evening, all welcome to you this evening. It's lovely to have so many of you with us from a, a variety of churches and communities, so uh, welcome. Uh, just a couple of notices before we uh, welcome our speaker for this evening. Um, you may have noticed we have a bookstore over the corner over there. Uh, that will be open at the end of the evening, so about 9 o'clock. Uh, but feel free to have a browse at any point. Um, and that will be available all through our series uh, with books related to some of the topics we'll be thinking about in the coming weeks. Um, on your table there are some feedback forms. Um, feel free to fill in that feedback form and you can put it in the basket on your way out. Um, if, you would, if you know you're coming every week, and rather than one in a few weeks' time, it's absolutely fine. This is last time we have missed some people because we only did them in the final week. So if you've got any feedback, then do fill in one of those and there's more available uh, on the way out as well. And just to uh, make you aware of the, the kind of format for the evening, um, so Rosie is going to speak to us for about half an hour and then we're going to have a break for tea and coffee, which will be brought around to you, and you might have cups on your tables. Uh, and then we'll have about half an hour while we're having our tea and coffee and biscuit um, for discussion. Rosie is going to provide a couple of questions for us to think about. And then we'll have a final half an hour to, with the opportunity to feedback uh, and for kind of Q&A and comments, etc. And we hope to finish about 9 o'clock. So hopefully that sounds okay to everyone. And so I'd like to welcome Rosemary Pierce, who is uh, the Diocesan Secretary uh, for the Oxford Diocese. Um, and she's going to be thinking this evening about use of money. Uh, Rosemary was a member of the National Working Party, which produced the Giving for Life Parish Resources helping churches to review their approach to giving and generosity within the context of discipleship. So I'm sure that will inform some of our thinking this evening. So a very warm welcome to you, Rosemary. Jesus' parables 
right approach to money is crucial to our relationship with God and others because it shapes our discipleship. The thing about um, money and possessions is that they have power. They cast a long shadow. And if you can just think about the sadness of the rich young ruler when he was told by Jesus that he was to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor and follow him. He didn't want to do it. And we're very reluctant sometimes ourselves to give up our possessions. Why are you so concerned about them? Is it because we think that they provide security and that despite what we might say, we at some point think that we really need to um, provide for ourselves rather than believing that God provides for us? Do we think, well, God helps those who help? Or is it that deep down we think that, that what we have, we've earned, rather than it being given as a gift? That our possessions um, somehow define who we are. They show what we're worth. And although we tend not to own up to it, even to ourselves, our view of other people can also be influenced by their wealth or lack of it, and of how they spend their money. The Bible tells us that it's not money itself that's the problem. It's, it's the, the love of money and the power that money has over us that's the problem. And if we're honest, there's sometimes a gap between how we, how we should think and act as Christians, or as people uh, of a moral bent, and how we actually respond. It's not that money and possessions in themselves are bad. It's the power that money has over us that's the issue. It's not simply wanting more of it. But more often, the decisions that we make because we're frightened of losing it, of losing what we have. And because when it comes to money, the church really is countercultural. A friend of mine was preaching in church and he asked the members of the congregation to turn to those in the neighbouring pew and talk together about how much they earned and how they spent their money. <laughs> People reacted with a state of frozen horror. <laughs> and that was the point. That was the point. Most of us don't like talking about how much money we have and how we spend it. And I wonder why, why that is. Is it that it's something that's very personal? Do we think that it says 
something about our value as a human being, that we have not enough money or too much money? What does it say about what I do with my money? My money, not just what we spend on the mortgage and the food bills, but the rest. What does it say about me as a person and my priorities? Why might I feel embarrassed to show somebody else my credit card bill? Is there a disconnect between the person I am and the person I appear to be? There's all kinds of things wrapped up in how we feel about what we have and, and what we do with what we have. I heard a story the other day that made me think a bit more about that sort of disconnect about who we actually are. And it's a story about a Kit Kat and um, I'm going to attempt to play it to you now. Sometimes when I'm walking down the street, uh, people stop me and ask me for change. And of course, it's not change they want. They want money. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Like, I always have change. I, I always give them money. Uh, it, it wasn't always this way. And there was a time when I was quite stingy with my money. And this is how it all changed, and it's due to my roommate. I was in the third year of my engineering school in India, and one day a relation of mine who's been overseas came back with a Kit Kat, the candy bar, a, a, a full bar. Uh, he gave it to me and he said, this is Kit Kat. They eat it in America. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. So, when, when, when you're in India and when you have a roommate, um, tradition dictates that you share this thing with your, with your roommate. Um, and I looked at it and it was like nothing I've ever seen before. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> and, and I said, I'm going to eat just a small piece. I mean, I'll still share the bulk of the thing with the roommate. You know how I'm done. I ate a small piece. And it was amazing. And, and I said, I'll eat a little piece more. <laughs> I mean, you know where this is going. Uh, pretty, pretty soon, I, I had only a very small piece of Kit Kat in my hand. And at this point, some kind of twisted logic seized me. I mean, what's the point of sharing now? <laughs> I mean, I something. 
And, and joy is a concept that's very hard to pin down. But you know it when you see it. And I saw joy in the eyes of my roommate. He's, the dude's clearly excited about something. Now in his hand is a small paper napkin, folded up. And he opens it up. And inside is a small one-inch piece of Kit Kat. <laughs> now unlike me, who had wealthy relatives abroad, he, a friend of a friend had given him something, a small piece, and his eyes were filled with the joy of sharing. And, and he said, this is Kit Kat. They eat it in America. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. And his eyes were sparkling with joy. I've never seen anything like that since or before. Well, my own eyes are more confused than anything else. Like, I mean, what am I supposed to say? Dude, I actually had a full bar. And, you know, I ate it all. So you should eat this. I mean, so he, so he proceeded to take a ruler. Uh, this is engineering school. So and the rulers that we use have one edge that sharp, the better to draw lines with. So he took the sharp edge of the ruler and he cut his tiny bit of Kit Kat into two. And he offered one piece to me. I ate it. <laughs> what else are you supposed to do? It's too, comp it's too complicated to do anything else. But, you know, you know, two Kit Kats in a single day within hours of each other, uh, the universe God, if you will, is trying to send me a signal saying, dude, you are on the wrong path. You need to change. And so I did. Thank you. I think that, that, uh, oh, embarrassed <laughs> laughter. Uh, that embarrassment fills that feeling of discomfort, doesn't it, between the people that we um, that we seem to be and want to be, and the people that we are. So, as we reflect on our journey with God and the integrity of who we are, um, I think it becomes apparent that our use of money and possessions is one of the things that it's most important to get into its proper place. So where do we start? Um, yes, so Max Redcott was a German theologian and he uh, lived about 1260 to 1320 something. And in one of his writings he said, if the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. Can that possibly be right? Can that possibly be right? I suppose what it says is that we, in that act of saying thank you, we understand ourselves to be in relation to someone 
the other, to God, and can turn in gratitude and say thank you. We recognise that we're not sufficient in ourselves, and we recognise that so much of life is gift. So that prayer, just that act of being able to say thank you, says something about how we are in relation with with, with God and as some other being who is providing for us, providing gift for us. The Old Testament tells the story of the Jewish people, um, a people special to God who were um, saved from slavery in Egypt, they went out into the desert, saved by God. Um, but instead of uh, remaining thankful and worshipping God, they turned away. They replaced him with gods of their own making, and they gave up the fountain of living water, that spring of the Spirit that God was giving to the people of Israel. And instead, they dug out systems, water tanks for themselves, cracked ones that held no water. They gave up the gift offered by the living God. And instead, they tried to create something of their own. In Jesus, we're once again offered the water of life. The offer to the woman of Samaria in John's Gospel was an end to all the thirsting, all that thirsting and longing for fulfilment and purpose. God promises that those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And there is that gift again, that gift offered by God, offered it to the Jews, and, and they tried to replace it with, with um, their own ways of being. And Jesus came offering it again. And some of the, um, some of the people who heard him preach just thought he was completely unacceptable. He was making claims that could not be accepted. But the disciples said, what they said, they said, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And if that is our experience too, then that's the place from which <coughs> in a sense of gratitude and praise, we can begin to look at life in a new way. And that includes money. Uh, but it's not easy because we often go back to the uh, approach where we're trying to uh, run our lives for ourselves, especially when we're thinking about how we want to use our money. And, and we, and we go about things in a way um, which doesn't work if what we're wanting to do is to be a disciple of Jesus. 
and we want to help to, to um, take forward God's mission in the world. We need to be going for the living water. We need to be following the steps of discipleship. And you might be thinking, well, you know, we're quite a long way through this evening already. We haven't had much talking about money, really. But that's because I absolutely believe that what this is about is not about actually how you spend your money. It's about how you are with God. And that as you stay close with God, then you can begin to make good decisions about how you spend your money. And they'll be different for all of us. So that, that's why the use of money, I think, is a discipleship matter. It's about gratitude and repentance, a change of life direction. And if our identity and that of others comes from the value in which we're held by Christ, then we see ourselves and other people very differently. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll remember that um, the Archbishop of Canterbury fairly recently discovered that the person that he had thought was his father was not actually his biological father. And um, the press wanted to make a field day of it, and it could have been very distressing. You know, for Archbishop Justin and other brothers. What he said was, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. And if we find, if finding ourselves and others in Christ becomes the most important not people's genetics, not their brains or their beauty, or their wealth or their possessions, but the recognition of God in them, if that's how we, become, how we learn to value ourselves and others, then it becomes a key part of how we understand our relationships and how we begin to use our money. And God begins to change how we see the world. Instead of being a world of risk and return, where we work hard to protect ourselves from an unknown future, where we put more and more away for a rainy day, but can never convince ourselves that we put away quite enough just like the guy who kept building bigger and bigger barns to put all his wealth in. He was kept trying to protect himself with that rain guy. But actually, his eye was not on the ball. We begin to move to a place where we can use the resources that we have to help God's work transforming the lives of individuals and communities across the world and even through the church. And God's economy is always one of abundance and generosity, even when we're talking about very small amounts. Five loaves and two fishes, or the widow's mite, is enough. 
And when you get the reckless generosity of love, the costly perfume that Mary poured over Jesus' feet, or the kindness of the Good Samaritan, then it has a very special uh, significance that breaks the power of materialism and the focus simply on oneself and one's family or one's friends. So that's all about how we begin to value ourselves and others and how we see ourselves in relation to the gift of God. I'm thinking then about what that means about the resources that we have and, and the purpose that we have them for. And it brings to the question about what we should be doing about giving and how we what we think about how we use our money for God's purposes. Uh, and the first question people quite often ask is, is uh, well, how much should I give? And what for? And of course, there's no simple answer to that. All there is, um, prayer. Uh, because we're, what we're having to, to be about is prayerfully reflecting how the resources that we have can be used to further God's work. Some parts of the church tithe. They give a tenth of their taxed income. Um, the General Synod suggested that, that church members might like to give 5%, a pound and 20 of their after-tax income to and through the church, and a similar amount to other organisations that help to build, bring God's kingdom. That may not be right for everyone, and there are times when when actually we have to think about our circumstances requires to be less and not more. But the important thing is that we are thinking and praying and planning for what we might give before we get round to spending what we have. But actually our ideas about how we can, can use money and gift money um, shouldn't simply be about the spare change that we have in the end when we've, when we've um, done everything else that we want to do in life. If actually what we're wanting to do is to be part of God's purpose and bring forward his kingdom, then actually the challenge is to look at our money and our resources in other ways. It may be that we have to think about uh, a simpler lifestyle that, that resists the, the pull of materialism. But it's certainly about generous and joyful giving. It's not about a grudging reluctance or a grudging sense of duty. Oh dear, I've got to give something, what's it going to be? going back to who we are and what our relationship is with God and our sense of that gift of what, what he's given us. There's a, there's a, a sort of a, a little schema that some people have devised in the church which is about 
um, what six steps of giving. Because the the um, the way in which we engage with our money and our possessions um, is part of the discipleship journey that, that lasts our whole life. <laughs> it's not something that we ever sort out quickly or easily. Um, but but this is something which is just a little thing which which actually um, it's sometimes helpful to, to think, well, where, where do I fit into this? And they say, well, the first step is, is sometimes when you're thinking about survival. And it says, well, I give a bit um, when I'm asked, because the church ought to be there if I want it. I'll give a bit. I, I might want to be buried there. Uh, or, you might have a sense of, of it being a bit like a supermarket. Um, well, I'm happy to pay towards the cost of the bit of the church that I want and I enjoy. Um, I'll pay for the, the, the children's work, or I'll pay something towards, you know, I don't want to pay for the Supporting the things that, 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 that suit you. You might see yourself as a supporter <coughs> and say, well, actually, I think the work of the church generally is very important and, and the work it does in the community. So, you know, I want to actually help to make that happen. Or you could say, well, actually, I consider myself to be a member of this organisation and I want to pay my fair share of what it costs to make it work well. You could be saying, my understanding of being a disciple is that I should put God first in my life. And that if you feel like that, you may think that you need to support the church in what it's doing, including the work in the community, to help to, to develop God's mission in that way. We could get to a position where you're actually being challenged in terms of real sacrifice. Uh, and, and you say, well, I recognise that, that God has been very generous to me and, and I want to have some sort of response to him, which, which will even be sacrificial in its nature. Well, I've got a little leaflet which I'm going to give you to take home with you, and I'll do that. But you might find it's, it's interesting to just sit and think quietly about you know, where you feel that you might sit into that connection, uh, into, into those steps. You know, is there one of those that reflects where you, where you feel you are, more or less, and you know, what might it mean for you to take another step? But giving is um, only part of how we use, use our money. Uh, we know that money is power and it's powerful. Uh, we can see that money can make things happen in the world. It can lead to individualism, uh, to a protected bubble of comfort, pleasure, 
that combine opportunities and influence can result in obscene inequality. It can pervert justice. It can uh, help you get your own way. But our money can also be used as a really powerful tool to help to transform the world for the better. We pay taxes to help to provide a good quality of life for our families and brothers in the community. We make buying decisions. Uh, do we buy fairly traded products or do we buy things that are so cheap that we know that the people who produce them can't be paid properly? Does our keenness for a bargain mean that we want to buy milk at, at a cost that, that means that the farmers lose money? Um, do we use our lives so that we live in ways that help to sustain the planet? If we have investments, do we take an interest in how those companies are run? Do we try and use our resources not only to give to those in need, but to transform unjust structures of society and help to build a better world. You know, we, you know, the church has been trying to set up credit unions so that people are not dependent on payday loans. The, the result of that is that 54% less people now have to use a payday loan. Um, the church was involved in the Jubilee 2000 campaign, um, which meant that the debts of 35 of the world's poorest countries were written off. We're able to use our, our money and, uh, as a tool to help to do good as well. Some years ago, the church summed up um, what it means um, to be engaged in the work of God in the five marks of mission. Um, and our discipleship is about the whole of life um, and the way that we use our money is a key part of how we share in God's work in every part of life in our giving, in our shopping, in our community, in our political engagement. It can work for good or evil, it can be a useful tool or a bad master. As we continue through life, the challenges money throws at us will change, but they certainly won't go away. Um, and how we respond will be a significant part of the story of our journey with God. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosemary. Certainly given us lots to think about there. Um, did you have anything particularly you wanted us to talk I about? certainly do. You're going to get a cup of coffee, which you must all be desperate you. for. <laughs> yeah. um, and I put some questions up on the board, and I thought you could just pick one 
opportunity if that is said talking about. Because some of you will, will be more interested in some questions than the other. So there's some questions to stop the discussion going. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, we do need real wisdom in that, isn't it? I 
maybe there's something about intent in it. I mean, if your intent is to provide um, employment for people who otherwise would not be able to fit within the market at all, is that different from actually saying we're going to pay this person the smallest amount of money that we get away with, or we're going to have them on a zero hours contract because actually it suits our company rather than the intention is difficult as well, isn't it? Thinking where, where that's coming from. Are there other comments or questions? There's a lot of chat going on. <laughs> We did answer the first question and we thought that we, if we knew the person, it would make no difference. Whereas uh, we put forward in our discussion, if we didn't know the person, then it probably would. Yes. That is, if you present yourself um, badly, then you would tend not to speak or open any conversation with them initially. Yes. about provide, responding to local poverty and um, we mentioned the food banks which are a local response by Christians to leaders. One in Croatia, one here, one in Working. For a short time we have one in Finch Hampstead, then the need for it fell away. But we felt that at least at one level Christians are and have been able to respond in that way. And we felt perhaps we ought to support that sort of initiative. And there are all sorts of projects somewhere in the, in the local community, like the church, and work with other, other organisations as well um, to actually find the places where there is need and to be able to help with that. Um, 
there's a lot of sense in that. But how much is the balance? And if you're actually saying, well, I can't, I can't give anything, well, I need mean, more and more. I mean, you know, where are you going to retire to? The Ritz? You know, well, what is it? What is it that you need to do? Um, and, and, you know, it's difficult because, um, you know, everybody has this um, sort of spectre over them of, you know, what does it cost to get care when you're old? You know, I mean, the, the sums of money seem unbelievably scary. Um, but actually, you know, you may not live that long. It's difficult, isn't it? You know, because it, so it's how you balance what you can do now with what you might be thinking of for the future. Um, yes. It's, 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 it takes a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? But if, but if you can't afford to at any level be generous now because you're you've got well, that's that mm -hmm. you know it's, it's getting that that's it. it takes a lot of wisdom there's a lot of prayer a lot of thinking about to get the balance to get the balance right i think one of the interesting questions too is, is how the church as an institution is generous mm as opposed to being prudent. Mm. You know, for example, we were talking about having buildings like our, 30, you know, our, our normal church to maintain. And so and we were talking about with our Methodist friends about how they are charging the Methodist church to always have put some aside for the maintenance of their, and the upkeep of, of their building. And that's a real challenge too. So you know, when we budget um, as a parish, you know, we're continually trying to not only do the right thing, but be prudent too as well. But then, I mean, then you always come back to the question is, um, should the church itself, should, should the congregation give away a percentage of its, its income? Um, is that what people expect when they give to the church? Because, or do they give to the church they want to give to the church, and they give to other charities because they give to other charities? And it's getting that balance right, too, between prudence and generosity. Yes. Well, what, and do anybody got any thoughts on that? I've seen the church in Christchurch that was destroyed in the earthquake. Um, the passage the rear on the, I think it was the mm -hmm. southern side, is completely gone. Uh, the big pile of rubble. What they've done is they've built what they class as a plastic church or a paper church elsewhere. It is of a ultra modern design. It appears to be on five or six um, ISO containers. And they built walls up in a large slope and they are uh, pressed pressed plastic, which is laminated so that you can have the lighting, but you don't get any rain. Uh, that's been their church for, I think, four years now. There is no likelihood in the short term and probably medium term of the cathedral ever getting built again, rebuilt again. It's about 125 to 150 years old, absolutely glorious. The bits and pieces inside are still painted. They've got to make a decision whether to destroy it totally 
and try and get something new. The buildings around it are now being made of a very heavy duty steel, which is a framework, a box framework that sits on the ground and that's bolted in in about large places, um, far more, far more steel than you would see in any building around here. Um, the church, if it's not to survive in its old form or current form, would have to adopt that arrangement. Um, we have an 11th century church, it would not survive the earthquake that they had. Uh, and putting some money away for an eventuality that would never happen in Great Britain, hopefully, um, would not be wise. There, they've now got to do that decision. So every part of their income uh, is now split between the charities that they did do and the care to make sure the building doesn't collapse any further, which is, I think, successful. Um, there's a framework that they appear to push inside. But if they get another big earthquake, then hold off the going on. Uh, but the new one is, because of its flexibility, will be able to withstand an earthquake. Um, you know, where, where do you go? And well, it's just very difficult when you've got heritage buildings and responsibilities for those. Um, but you've also got the community that inhabits that building and that, that lives in the wider community and, and your, your engagement with them, you know, your life with them. And it's very sad if <coughs> you are as custodians of an old building.
questions. So, something for you to think about when you go home. Uh, thank you very much for letting me come this evening. Uh, and, um, and I'm going to have to go home and do some thinking and praying for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard myself talking to myself as I've been talking to you. So thank you very much.